1897, Black America's most prolific scholar, W.B. Du Bois, wrote a book called The Negro in Business. And uh, it's a thick volume. And you'll, you'll probably only be able to get that book at some of the top universities, whatever. Clark Atlanta, the Woodruff Library, has a copy. And I would dip into it and read it. When he was a professor, he taught economics at Atlanta University at the time. During the summer months, he would get on the train and he would traipse up and down the eastern seaboard interviewing successful black business owners for this book. That's why I'm, I'm a Johnny-come-lately, what I've done Du Bois did in 1897. Now, I share all that to share this. Within the first 30 pages of that book, he has two profound statements. Number one. He says the man or woman who won't control his or her finances won't control anything else. So what does that mean? Well, if you don't care about the money in your pocket, what do you care about the quality of education here in your community? What do you care about your institutions? What do you care about the crime levels and whatever? You don't even care, you know, care about the money in your pocket. And then number two, he says nothing positive will ever occur in a community that fails to circulate its dollars. Now, he said this in 1897, and we're still struggling with that today in the black community in 2020. Black America, read the email, read the text message. Come on, circulate dollars. And when you talk about circulation of dollars, no group, top of the list, number one, East Indians, Arab community in the United States, the average dollar stays in that community minimum 45 days. Number two, Asian-Americans. Asian-Americans, average dollar stays in the Asian community about 24 days. The average dollar stays in the Jewish community about 19 days before leaving. In black America, it's six hours and then it's out of there. But that wasn't, that, that wasn't the norm because when you look at the Tulsa riots, what I was about to share with you, my wife is from Oklahoma City and uh, we were college students. We got married our senior year in college. She initially was at Oklahoma State, and I was a student at OU. She transferred, and we finished. But my mother-in-law, her mother, was born and raised. She was a small child in Tulsa. And she told us vividly, you know, before she made her transition, the day uh, in April in 1921, when her father came home from work, scooped her and her sister up, grabbed them just like picking up two babies, and said, we got to get out of here. And she said, Daddy, where are we going? I said, I don't know, but we got to get out of here. They were burning down the community, okay? Right there, Greenwood, Archer, and Pine, Carmitra, a 36, 40-block area. You had the absolute best, baddest black folks on the planet living in that 36 to 40-block area, 1921 Black Wall Street. You had more than 600 you know, black businesses. I mean, you had, what, three churches. You had a hospital. You had a bus line. You had six airplanes. The school system you had in that 36 to 40 block area was second to none in the state. Why? Because you had school teachers. One had a, one had a doctorate from Northwestern. My, you know, my alma mater teaching elementary school kids, okay? So you had about 600 businesses. You had, uh, what, two hotels. You had uh, 30 restaurants. Um, on and on and on and on and on. What, 20-something, gro 21 grocery stores and the like. But going back to circulation of the black dollar, they said that the average dollar, 1921 Black Wall Street, 
stayed in that community anywhere from six months to a year. Six months to a year. Can it be done? Yeah, it can be done. You know, the bottom line, do what other groups are doing. Don't reinvent the wheel. Do what other groups... Now, I'm not saying be an easy touch. If, you know, you look at my wife. If you are African-American and you are in business and she needs something, she will find you. You know, she is, she is a stalwart on doing that. But you're going to do it right and you're going to commit to excellence. And so the bottom line is, you know, when you talk about economic development and you talk about the wealth gap, a lot of the wealth gap, that can be thrown on us because we've given our finances away. All right, you got all, you have almost, what, 180 countries that belong to the United Nations just in terms of wealth. Just in terms of wealth, you know, we're in the top 20. A problem isn't, you know, our money, it's what we do with our money. That's the bottom line. And every other group makes sure that that money goes into the community. And I'm going to close it out with this. All right, uh, Carmitra, you got a dollar and I got a dollar. But I'm going to give 95 cents of my dollar to you. And now you got a dollar 95 and I got a nickel. These are questions that we have to face as a community. Number one, how can my car be as nice as yours? How can my home be as nice as yours? How can my institutions be as vast and as steeped in tradition as yours? How can my IQ be as high as yours? So these are changes that we have to do as, you know, we focus on this racial tension society and making changes in terms of our own personal economic development. Let's get that straight before we do anything else. Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Business podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, author, coach, and professor at Clark Atlanta University. He has interviewed peak performers all over the world and learned the best ideas, strategies, and success principles from their words. He's heard the same things enough times to know that all people who succeed tend to follow the same path and that all people who have not succeeded tend to fall into the same pit over and over again. Today, I talked to him about what factors make someone a successful entrepreneur, what key ideas ensure success, and how to adapt your definition of success during critical and difficult times. We've included labels in the podcast description that let you jump around to different topics of our conversation if you're looking to only listen to certain parts. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy the entire discussion. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast either on YouTube or your preferred podcasting platform so you don't miss new episodes. And please leave a rating on Apple Podcast and or Spotify to help the podcast get noticed. I release new episodes on the 7th of every month. Without further ado, here's our conversation. You've been in the room with successful millionaires. A bunch of them. Talk to us about how did you even get in the room? 
Great question. Uh, when I was writing my first book, what makes the, excuse me, my first book actually was, you know, what makes the great great. And I pivoted two years after that at the request of W. Clement Stone and the Napoleon Hill Foundation to switch to Think and Grow Rich. But the bottom line is, Carmitra, I stepped out there. They didn't know me and I didn't know them. But I knew, you know, there's a way and, you, you know, you can't G-E-T to your A-S-K. And I, I put together a bold letter and I went after it. But here's the key. I looked at the list and I said, who is the king or queen of the mountain? I'm going after that individual first because I knew or I thought that everybody else would fall in line. So at that particular time was John Johnson, it was Barry Gordy and those folks. And though I did get other folks before I got them, because it took me about two and a half years to get John Johnson, after I got him, I mean, everything seemed to click. Sure. So, um, and I had to pivot again because back then there was no caller waiting, caller ID, pager, cell phone, and the like. So I sent a letter to John Johnson of Ebony Magazine, and I mapped out, you know, why I needed this interview and this, that, and everything. And I was a pharmaceutical sales rep at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was the first African-American male, okay, and I had uh, two jobs. As soon as I got out of college, I was the first African-American male in the rotational program of Texas Instruments in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. And then I was the first African-American male in the rotational program for Smith, Klein, and French Pharmaceutical. So my first tour duty was manufacturing in Philadelphia. Then they, sh you know, shifted us out to Atlanta, and I carried the bag. I was in marketing and sales. And that's when I was hot and heavy with the book. So I was working a territory near my house. And I said, hmm, lunchtime. Do I want to go to McDonald's? Do I want to go to Burger King? Or do I want to go buy the house and maybe, you know, eat some leftovers and blah, blah, blah. So something said, go buy the house. And when I went home for lunch, the phone rang and I picked it up. And it was John Johnson of Ebony Magazine. Responding to your inquiry. Responding to not his assistant, not his secretary. Mm -hmm. He personally called. Mm -hmm. I like I, said, I like when you said if you you don't G E T what you don't A S K exactly. you don't get what you don't ask for. Yeah. So tell us about you were in the room with millionaires, successful entrepreneurs. Share your most memorable entrepreneur story where you've interviewed someone. Who oh, was that with, uh, and kind of set I've, the tone I've, for I've us? I've had so many. Um, I. I interviewed John, I happened to interview John Johnson twice, and I had, you know, from Damon John, T.D. Jakes, uh, Tyler Perry. I mean, they, they, they all had something to add, but, but the key is, you know, one of the things that, um, that I like to be known for, I, I was, and, and the same thing with Napoleon Hill. When Napoleon Hill and Andrew Carnegie met, the reason why... They kicked it off together. The reason why, you know, they were seamless together. Okay, I was like Hill, dead broke, and Carnegie, king of the mountain, okay? But what, you know, what drew them together is that Hill wasn't caught up in all the bling bling. Mm -hmm. He wasn't caught up in all the rapture. Man, look at this guy. He got a 64-room, you know, mansion on Fifth Avenue, New York, overlooking Central Park. You know, his butler came down and took me back to his book line study. And that's the same thing. When I when I met, you know, uh, John Johnson and Earl Graves and Kathy Hugh, I wasn't caught up in all that stuff. Sure. 
What I was caught up, let's talk about the mindset. And see, that's where, you know, I tell people all the time, here we are in this COVID pandemic, Mm -hmm. all right? And businesses are dropping out like flies and everything. So I asked these entrepreneurs, I said, you know, what would your business like business uh, be like if Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey were on your team? Well, I would do ABC, XYZ, one, two, three. Well, damn it, act like they're on your team. Because so many entrepreneurs, and you had a question, the difference between an entrepreneur and a small business owner, they fall in the trap of making excuses. Well, if I had the resources, man, yeah, well, if Oprah Winfrey were on my team, I would have the resources to do ABC, XYZ, one, two. It's not the resources, Carmitra. It's the resourcefulness, you know, that does it, man. It's okay. So you don't have the money. Okay. What do you have that you can use? Right. Well, I got a head full of ideas and I got a briefcase and a book bag and a a book full of ambition. Well, use it. Right. And they all were at that point where they didn't have the resources. When you, you know, read Oprah's story, it'll put you on your knees, you know, she didn't have to be here. They could have got an abortion for her. I mean, her family had all types of issues sure. and challenges. And here she came up and she was abused and she was neglected. And she had to be resourceful in order to do this. No one gave her anything. And the same story is true of John Johnson. John Johnson in the 1940s hocked his mother's furniture for $500. All right. So let's do the calculus. Let's do the statistics. $500 equal today is worth $7,700. Well, damn it, it's still nothing because when you compare that to Jeff Bezos, okay, let's talk about Bezos. Okay, here he is in the early 1990s. He's got his fancy degree from engineering from Princeton. And what does he do? He's from Seattle and he goes to New York and he's a part-time day trader and investment banker. So what happened? Well, in 1993, an undergraduate student at the University of Illinois creates the first website. What's a website? I don't know. So he says, what's a website? And he sees where the internet over an 18-month period, Carmitra, grows 2,300%. He says, I got to be a part of this. Immediately quits that job in New York. Goes back and lives with his parents in Seattle. Lives out of the garage. His parents said, what are you doing, man? We're still paying for your education, blah, blah, blah. He says, I'm going to sell books online. Resourcefulness. He said, "What do you, we didn't pay this for you to sell books. I'm, first of all, what is online, Jeff? And the rest Resource. is history. So resources versus yeah, resourcefulness. Yes. I like that. So with that, what has been the mindset of successful entrepreneurs? What have you what have you seen and what has your research shown? Well, the DNA, number one, from what I've seen, and I had face-to-face interviews. And when you look at the fifth book, The Wealth Choice, number one, I had face-to-face interviews with about 60, 70. And when I set out, I didn't want, you know, any athletes. I didn't want any entertainers. We're overrepresented in that area. I want folks that maybe you'd pass the street on Peachtree Street and wouldn't even know it until, you know, you talk to them and you look at the business and you look at the growth and the like. So I had about 60 to 70 interviews um, and with the Steve Harveys, and I spent a day with Kirk Franklin. I mean, all the folks over here. Then number two, I had six focus groups around the country. I had three focus groups here in Atlanta. I had a huge focus group in Washington, D.C., okay? There were no less than 100 black millionaires in that focus group in Washington, D.C. 
uh, Bob Johnson of BET was in that room. Carla Harris, most powerful black woman on Wall Street, was in that room. The Roberts brothers, Michael and Steve Roberts, they own, what, two or three hotels right here in Atlanta. They were in the room. So, you know, I got a way, I, I got a chance to see how they interact with their peers, mm-hmm. you know. And the way that they interact with peers is the way that you and I would interact with each other. I mean, no one is, yeah, they network and how you're doing and this, that and everything. And they take mental notes and the like. And then last but not least, I used a full-blown survey, 118-question survey, try to get into the thinking. So what is the DNA of an entrepreneur? Number one, they're driven. They're driven. You know, you know. number two, if I ask you what you do for a living, if I ask you, I said, what do you, what do, you do? Would you call it a job? Would you call it a career? Would you call it work? Anytime you use terms like job and work, it seems heavy. It seems heavy. Well, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneurship's a love affair. And why do I say a love affair? Baby, you're talking 14, 16-hour days. Mm-hmm. And then once you get, you know, just the rigor of the days and the discipline, you better be in love with what you sell. You better be in love with your product or your service. And, you know, I, I made the comment to you when we were at lunch. I said, you know, entrepreneurs solve problems. I said, you can be an entrepreneur in corporate America. You can be an entrepreneur, you know, working so, social service agency. I see myself as an entrepreneur working in academia. You know, I try to solve the problems and I have a customer. My customer is my students. My customer is my dean. Be more efficient and more effective. And I used that same mindset before, in 1992, 1991, here's the book over there, Thinking Grow With Your Black Choice, it's released. And I got job offers to teach. And I had a presentation at National Black MBA, and the dean of Clark Atlanta School of Business, Ed Irons, was there. And he said, when you know, uh, when you get through signing those books, I like to talk to you and blah, blah, blah. And he said, come visit me in my office. Didn't have any idea what he had in mind. And, he, you know, gave me a job. He says, when you think about teaching, man, go ahead, send me your bio and this, that, and everything. I'm going to give you an offer right here. Okay, so I said to my wife, I said, if I ever go into the classroom, and I know I'm going to go in the classroom because this is what I do. This is what I'm called to do is teach. I'm going to do it right. And so what I did, Carmitra, I went around the country and I sat before, just like me and you sitting talking, I sat before the best educators at that time. I went out to California, Stanford School of Business, and I literally had lunch with Charles Benini. Dr. Kimbrough, who the hell is Charles Benini? I am so glad you asked who is Charles Benini. He teaches entrepreneurship at Stanford B School, and it was in his class that Phil Knight got the idea for Nike Shoes. Wow. Yes. Wow. Wow. And I said, what was it like with Nike, with, with uh, Phil Knight in the class and blah, 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 and this, that, and everything. And he, we, you know, I, I, I listened to his pedagogy and he t- told me the reason why he teaches. And he says, I'm only here to enable the dreams of my students. Stanford professor. And then I, I interviewed Marva Collins, Westside Preparatory yes. in Chicago. Yes. And I said, Marva, why in the world do you leave the public school system to start your own academy? And she said to me, my kids were reading on grade levels far and above anybody else in the district. My kids were going on to college far and above anybody else in the district. We were scoring higher on standardized tests than anybody else. And not once, not once did a superintendent or deputy superintendent ever come in my classroom and say, Marva, hell of a job. She said, I'm out of here. Right. So it, it was that type of thing. So number one. Driven, number two, the work is a calling. Again, going back, if I asked you, would you tell me it's a career? Would you tell me that it's a mission? 
Mm. You know, hopefully you will tell me it's it's a mission what right. you're doing here, because if it's if it's a mission, you never you're not going to do it for the money. Right. And all the millionaires that I set before and I interviewed, not one Carmitra, not one in my research could tell me the day that they became seven figures. It was like any other day. Sure. They didn't do it for the cash. So they're driven, they love what they do, and they solve problems. Yep. And they solve problems. And not an easy and not an easy task. You sure. got to throw that in there. Sure. Not an easy. And they, and they signed up for that and they knew that. Okay, so what do you do when you when you fail? Well, you learn from it. Number one, they learn from the failure. Okay? Number two, they ask the question, yeah, how can I grow? Okay, so I did this, man. I jumped out there. I got my teeth kicked. I got my hands spanked. Okay, how can I grow? And number three, how can I move on? Okay, now, now we know not what to do. You know, that type of thing. So, and then the last thing, number six, they make things happen. Yeah, well, small business people, they run small businesses and like entrepreneurs solve problems. They add value. And that is critical. So that's a great differentiator. The difference between an entrepreneur and a small business, an entrepreneur solves problems and add value. And a small business. They run small businesses. They run small businesses. I think the mindset of an entrepreneur is totally different. You just told us the DNA and the makeup of it. Mm -hmm. So you told us about the DNA. How can an entrepreneur remain resilient during this time? I I saw statistics on Mm -hmm. CNN that broke my heart, right? Oh, yeah. Over 60% of small businesses are going to fail as a result of COVID-19. Yep. And if you're looking at that, if you're looking of ways to sustain your business, you're thinking about your what's next. Mm-hmm. Help us out. What should an entrepreneur be thinking and doing during this climate? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I've seen the same data, but I'm of the thinking that many of these businesses are going to collapse anyway. Okay. Okay. Why do I say that? How in the world can you say that, man? Because there's every entrepreneur, every business owner, they're running two businesses, the business that they're in now and the business that that enterprise is going to become five to 10 years down the road. I mean, you got to think, you know, the, the worst thing in the world that you can do. The wor- and that's the, that's the key to dominance, Carmitra. Okay? Everybody is hungry. At one time, Beyonce was hungry. At one time, you know, uh, Earl Grey's Black Enterprise magazine was hungry. Oprah Winfrey was hungry. Michael Jordan was hungry. And that hunger allowed them to reach their goals and objectives. So what is the difference between those that are still at the top and those that fell by the wayside. Well, when they reach the goals and objectives, they maintain that level of hunger. And then nice. after they reach the goals and objectives, and they still got that hunger, they still got the, do- the their desire, well, that's dominance. Well, you got to take the same mindset. I don't care what you're doing. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, all right, so here's the pandemic and blah, 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 and you got your business. Well, let's sit back. So, number one, top of the list, you got to find a way to digitize your company. Right. And a lot of small businesses didn't do that. Sure. There are 21 different ways to market or sell a product or service. And number 21 is internet, which means digital. When you, like when we talked on the phone, what is Netflix? It's blockbusters digitized. That's right. That's right. You know, what is Zoom? It's the office meeting digitized. What is Google? It's the public library digitized. Okay, so show me how you're going to digitize this business. And that's what you're doing right now. What is a podcast? It's talk radio digitized, man. 
So it's radio without the music digitized, and it's making it easy. I mean, if you got iTunes and you got this man, and you, and not only that, it is it's the classroom digitized because people are listening and growing and developing. So number one, you got to digitize it. Number two, you got to identify not only who's your customer and not only who's your perfect customer, okay, but you gotta you gotta contact that customer who's going to be with you through thick and thin, through thick and thin. That entrepreneur that, yeah, I, I, I know that my product is sort of waned. It's, it's lacking and everything. I don't have all the resources that I had because of the pandemic and this and that. And thank you for continuing to buy from us. And thank you, you know, for continuing to use our service and everything when we're a little bit down and out. And when we get back on our feet, it'll be back at that level that you're used to. Okay. And then how do you reward that customer who's been with you all over the years? You give them an offer that they absolutely positively cannot, you know, cannot turn their back on. An offer that they cannot say no to. An offer that you wouldn't give anybody else. And it's about relationships and relationships. That's the currency of the future. That's the currency That's right. right now. That's right. Business relationships. And even after you digitize your company, there's got to be 50 million small businesses around here don't know the slightest idea how to do that. You go help them before you know it. That may be your new business. Well said. That may be, you know, I was on a podcast with, um, there were 21 or 25 uh, young ladies and they were all um, uh, dance instructors. And they didn't know what to do because they couldn't go into the studio. And I said, ladies, you got to digitize it. And some knew how to do it. And then 21, and this is a group of them. They all talk. They all interact. They were One was down in Puerto Rico. One was in Savannah. One was in Chicago. And it was like this underground mafia sorority that they had of dance instructors. And I said, you got to digitize it. You got to make it. I guess, where people can go ahead and cut the computer on and you got to show it. Half of them didn't know how to do that. I said, well, let's look at the walls. I said, raise your hand. Just give me a high sign, man. How many of you know how to do Well, you got to help those that didn't. And why did you wait for me to be on the podcast and, and knowing that she didn't? Come on, ladies. I said, man, that's a good idea, man. Digitizing. And digitizing speaks to business continuity. Oh, without a doubt. Big time. Without a out. Having that digital footprint. Yep, persistence you know, will at, get it for you. That's right. Consistency will help you keep it. You know, I looked at all the activities that children were doing. They started doing piano lessons via Zoom, basketball, yep. right? We yep. are in a new normal, like it or not, yep. we have to adapt. Yep. And I heard you say digitize was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, make your current customers maintain relationships. Build that currency. That's the currency. That's the equity, man. That's right. And, well, those are the questions that you got to ask yourself. Number one, who's your customer? Number two, who's your perfect customer? When I say perfect customer, you got to tell me in all the graphics, the demographics, give me the age. Give me the race. Give me the sex. Give me the income of your perfect customer. Mm-hmm. You know, number two geographics where does your customer live okay so we're in atlanta is your customer in new york okay well if in new york or california or florida or or chicago how are you going to service them blah 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 and then last but not least which is the critical question that so many entrepreneurs don't even address who's your non-customer so they just focus in on the perfect no tell me who's your non-customer in other words 
who are the individuals or group of individuals who currently aren't using your product or service right now, but would use your product or service in the future if you made the slightest change, the slightest modification to it. To adapt to that new Just because they buy, yeah, right. and, you, and this is what you teach. Right. Just because they buy from you on Monday doesn't mean they're buying from you on Tuesday. That's right. <laughs> so come on, man, you got to grow the business. That's right. So let's talk about business continuity. We talked about, you know, small businesses, entrepreneurs, the small business community. And one of the things I talked about on the first episode of my podcast is what I do in a corporation, Mm -hmm. supplier diversity, Yep. where we help those businesses get corporate contracts. From your standpoint and perspective, what is an obligation of the corporation during this time to small businesses? Oh, man. Unbelievable. Um... Carmichael, my mind goes back to the early 1960s. Malcolm X was on a book tour and he was going around to colleges and he was on a book tour and he was in a city. And after he spoke, a young white female came up to him, completely enamored, completely engaged and said, Minister Malcolm, I love your remarks and everything. And I'm so excited and I'm just energized and I want to do something Please tell me what I can do. What can, Mr. Malcolm, what can I do? And Malcolm X took off his glasses and looked at her and said nothing. Well, as time went on, days, weeks, months, he saw it as a teachable moment that he dropped the ball and he felt bad. And Malcolm said, man, I made a big mistake. Of course, it's something to do. Well, I thought about that. And I thought about that time. And I said, if he were here right now, I know three things he would definitely tell corporations to do number one number one all right right now as robert smith has said carmitra there are four thousand banks in the united states from new york to california right now four thousand banks all right of those four thousand banks only only 38 are black owned 38 out of four thousand if you got in a car your little red car I love red. What can I say? From Harlem, New York, all the way out to Watts, California, and you stopped at every black community along the way. 70% of those black communities wouldn't even have a branch bank in their community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, what am I saying? What I want corporate America to do? I want you to take 5% of your profits and put it in black banks. Mm -hmm. And put it in black banks. I mean, black entrepreneurs, black aspiring homeowners, black businesses, um, parents with black kids trying to educate them. Man, we can't. And now I'm going to call it the way it is. We can't go into Wells Fargo. We can't go into Chase. We can't go into J.P. Morgan. I mean, you guys won't let the BB&T, Regions Bank. No, that's not your cut. Blah, blah, blah. But these black banks will. They will. Yep. So let's call it like we see. You know, so. And when I say 5% of your profits... Look, 5% of your profits and you leave it in there for five years. Let us benefit from the compound rolling over interest. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at those 38 black banks, Kamicha, what do they have in common? Number one, they got low income customers, man. They don't come in there with big profits and a whole bunch of a bag full of money. That's number one. Number two, multiple withdrawals. They can't, they can't even get interest off it. Right. There is absolutely no rollover effect. So they come in there with just a little savings, and as soon as they put it in Monday, they're pulling it out Wednesday. I mean, who can benefit from that? 
So no, you keep it in there for 60 months. So that's number one, to invest in black banks. Number two, invest in black businesses. Now, you and I, we've been in Atlanta for a while. Okay, people say, well, where does racism exist? 99% of the time, racism is the first face you see behind the desk. And it also applies to community. Why does Candler, well, how come Candler Road and how come, you know, Camp Creek and how come, you know, Jonesboro Road can't look like Barrett Parkway? Right. And you, okay, you're going you're gonna to let me drive up and down Jimmy Carter. You're going to let me drive up and down Pleasantdale. You're going to let me drive up and down Barrett Parkway. And then you're going to take me to Candler Road. And then you're going to take me to, I mean, wherever on the southwest side. And you're going to tell me that redlining no longer exists. Sure. It's nonsense. Right. Come on, man. We know you're dealing from under the deck. Now is the time for you to say two things. Look me in the eye. Say, Dr. Kimbrough, I will never make that mistake i will never do that again i will never do that again number two i'm sorry this is your opportunity to make men so number one put your money in the banks number two black businesses and number three critical number three you gotta sponsor hbcus you gotta help hbcus you're a product of an HBCU. I stand before my kids. I tell them all the time. I never had a black teacher in my life. I never attended an HBCU, but I am walking distance of 70 years old, and that makes me historically black. I am. <laughs> oh, yeah, I am historically black, brother. <laughs> I got two of my three daughters got degrees from HBCU, so I got skin in the game. I want to make sure Absolutely. that their shingle on the wall means something. Okay, so what do I mean? Okay, so right now, what do we have? Do the data. Look at look at the data. You got one hundred and one HBCUs across the country, three hundred thousand students, black students at these HBCUs, and let's look at the determining factor here of the three hundred thousand. Come meet you, my eyes. I just it just rips my heart of the three hundred thousand. More than sixty percent of first generation. In other words, we need coaching, man. We need right. a hell of a lot of coaching, okay? Right. So of the 300,000, 60% of first generation, this will rip your heart out. 40% of those kids, of those 300,000, 40% come from households in which a mother and father can't give a dime towards their education. Mm-hmm. That means from the day they set foot on that campus, they carry in the freight to the day they walk across that stage. Come on, man. So you see that. Okay, so HBCUs only enroll 5%, okay, of all the black college students, you know, from Harvard all the way out to Stanford, only 5%. But we produce 30% of the black doctors. 30%, one-third of the black engineers. That's amazing. One-third of the black lawyers. From HBCUs. Accountants. Man. So these kids coming out of Harvard Medical School, coming out of my alma mater, Northwestern, man, they ain't going to the black community to go ahead and, you know, take your vital signs. My doctor, man, Harold Moore, where did he finish from? Howard. Undergrad Hampton. Howard. That's my right. doctor. He's been, been he's examining me for more than, what, 25 years? That's right. And look at his staff. Look at where all his nurses went, HBCUs. Right there, I can walk to his office. 
He lives in the same development in me. Sometimes he sees me walking my dogs. I'm glad you're walking my dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell so you anything and everything you want to know about my body. So corporations need to step up. Yeah. They have an obligation. Yes. To the small business community. Yes. Through investing in black you banks. You do those three things that will make businesses. all the difference in the world. Well said. Yep. All well the said. difference in the world. And I, and I don't care. You got to have a presence on the campus of these HBCUs. Particularly in our B schools, I don't care if it's a lunch and learn. I don't care if it's a mentorship. I don't care if it's a uh, a group talk. I don't care if it's an internship. I don't care if it's a plant tour. You need a presence. We ha- they have to invest in those yes. because many of their employees, interns, will be black students from HBCU. Exactly. I am a product of that. Exactly. And I talked about that in my first podcast how southern university was a pivotal point in my life and learning to speak up and getting skills and even during the pandemic i went back to my hbcu skills that i learned in college yep. right couldn't go get my hair done couldn't do my nails yep. but guess what i did it in college yeah and that is what sustained yeah. me <laughs> during the quarantine wow so you know hats off to HBCUs. Thank you for all the work you do in the classroom at Clark Atlanta oh, University. <laughs> I mean, your ch- kids walk out inspired. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what are some of the success stories of some of your students that you've taught? What are they doing oh, now? Oh man, they call me all the time. I got I got them at American Express. Um, I got them in real estate. I got a, an ex-student who wore the polo. He's vice president of, um, um, oh man, Oakland Athletics baseball team. Nice. Uh, I mean, I, and they they call me up and everything coming back. Dr. Kimbrough, how can I help and this, that, and everything? So yeah, we got a whole bunch of success stories. Good. That, that a makes me proud. A whole bunch of success yeah. stories. So you know, and and that is that is the critical difference. Um, you know. I, I imagine I'd probably be the same way if I taught her to PWI, but there's a, a whole bunch of other things you're going to do at an HBCU. I mean, the it's just, it's just a completely and totally different experience from student coming in here. Mom's Dr. Kimbra, man, my part time job, and I don't have money, you know, uh, put gas in my car, you know, here's $20. Uh, uh, or you see. One of the workers, a woman who cleans my office. Are you feeling good today? No, I don't feel good. I don't have money to get my prescription out here. I mean, it's just a different set and just a different relationship altogether. When you think about the entrepreneur moguls when I think of Magic Johnson and Jay-Z and Sean Combs and maybe Russell Simmons what is their obligation to other entrepreneurs maybe those that are just starting out and admire them what can they do or what should they be doing to give back well you know what it's really not an obligation and the reason why I say that because if they are a true entrepreneur okay Part of their DNA is continued personal growth and progress. And what is the highest form? What is the culminating point of personal growth and progress? It's called service. Giving and service is transformational. It is transformational, okay? 
that is the highest point. That that is the self-actualized life. Yes. Okay. Self-actualization. First, you want food, shelter, and clothing. Then you get to a point where you personally want better food, shelter, and clothing. Then you get to the point where you want best food, shelter, and clothing. But after that, you want food, shelter, and clothing for your fellow man, fellow woman. So if they are true entrepreneurs and they are on that that treadmill leading towards that goal and objective, they won't have to be told to do it. They will do it. It becomes automatic. That's right. Giving is transformational. They give it. I mean, that's why, I mean, you see it with Tyler Perry, you know, paying for the funerals and this, that, and everything. And you see it with uh, other entertainers and, and doing this. It's transformational. You know, it's a, a success is a six-pointed star, and success is not about money. Now, you got a lot of folks who are still into that and everything, and I'm not going to begrudge it. It's your money. You worked hard for it. You do whatever you want to do, but it's not about money. But that's, remember, what is it? It's about progress. It's Listen, Steve Jobs gave four reasons why to be in business, and not one had to do with money. Number one, he said, don't build a business, build a movement. Steve Jobs, don't build a business, build a movement. Number two, make it easy for your customers to do business with you. What I said, 21 different ways to market or sell a product or service. You got folks out there who only shop online, so you got to be online. You got folks out there don't even have a computer, so you got to have a retail outlet. You you got you got to meet the customer wherever he or she is. You know, Mm -hmm. so make it easy for people to do business with you. Number three, what I said about Charles Benini. Okay, fulfill the dreams of your client. That's right. Fulfill the dreams of your client. Providing solutions. In other words, what is the wow factor? I tell my students all the time, you see that guy in the street corner with that cardboard sign, I will work with food? Got the same opportunity, Bill Gates got the same opportunity, Oprah Winfrey, they give me pushback. How can you say that? Because anybody can wow the customer. Anybody can do more than what is expected, more than required. And I, I personally saw that twice. So, you know, I read that, that Walt Disney, when he invented Disney World, man, he told him, he said, man, when I get through with Disney World, when I get through with Epcot Center, man, it's going to be state of the art. It's going to be top of the mind status. And it's going to be a little bit pricey. And it is a little family of four. One week at Disneyland can run you anywhere between eight and ten grand. Mm-hmm. And then he was asked, what in the world are you going to do for eight or ten thousand? You know what Disney told him? Memorable moments. I'm going to give them memorable moments. Creating experience When they spend a week here, sure. your little daughter, blah, blah, she can't wait to get back to that elementary school, tell her classmates, right. look what I got. And then they're going to go it's create good, those good, memories. The best, uh, best, that's right. That's right. The best that's right. advertisement. And the same thing with Phil Knight. When he invented the Air Jordan, it was not so much the Air Jordan shoe. Phil Knight wanted to be the first to have a $100 gym shoe. That's right. Because he got, he says, if Chanel can sell a bottle of champagne, a bottle of perfume, cologne for a hundred dollars, I can. And he said, "Come on, man, what what are they going to get for a hundred dollars shoe, man? They're going to think that they can fly." A lot of conversation around people that are in this economy, they're trying to pivot, they've been downsized, people are thinking about maybe now is the time to start my business. This pandemic has Mm -hmm. taught us a lot of lessons. And some people are afraid to do that. Some people are afraid of the jump, Mm -hmm. right? But they have a passion for it, right? But they maybe are comfortable with this salary 
and they don't want to do the jump the or take the risk. That's the problem. Raise your standards. You Love just it. said comfortable to suck. Raise it. your standards. You are in. You are where you are in life right now by the standards that you set. Love it. My body is in the shape right now because of standards that I set. Look at it, man. Don't you know? I told you I had a personal trainer. That's right. You I did. haven't lifted a weight since Valentine's Day. I weigh what the. Happened? I weigh the same now. Look at this. What happened? You got distracted. You. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, man. Well, he Pandemic said, you, know, you can come over. You can wear the mask. I said, man, I can't wear no mask when out. I'm lifting. Man, right. I'm choked to death, man. <laughs> Raise your standards. The income that you have right now, that's based off of your standards. Now, why is that critical that you raise your standards? Because that is the only way. Once you raise your standards, you got to get rid of self-limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. Once you say, I'm flying first class, enough of this coach anymore. And you're going to get pushback. Girl, take your hips back to coach. No, who, who do you think? Of? No, I'm. no one in our family ever, you know, rode first class and everything. Get rid of the self-limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. And that is critical. So Shift number one, raise your standards. Number two, get rid of the self-limiting beliefs. And then so many folks right now, the, 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 the last key is certainty. Once you are clear, the clarity is everything. Clarity is a force multiplier. Once you are clear, matter dissipates. When the idea is clear, Matter dissipates. Remember, here we are, 1957. My father came home with our first television set. I was seven years old. Big old wooden box. Picture two. Big old dials on it and everything. The box was bigger than the picture two. Picture two was only about that size, but the box is this big. Blah, blah, blah. But look at it now. Now, they say that your smartphone, within the next five years, will be your TV. Mm-hmm. TV's on the wall, now That's right? right. No wires. You exactly. just drive a nail into the wall, put your phone on there right there, and that's watch right. TV right now. Why? Because the idea of what television is is crystal clear now. Now they see it's crystal clear. So that, you know, it, it, everything, every step towards progress, Carmitra, is more spiritual. Mm-hmm. We, we don't said. invent anything. That's we right. uncover it. That's right. We just, so, you know, that's right. and that's why the critical times, you know, with the racial tension and this and that and everything, we are finally becoming clear of who we are and what we are. And then the benefits that are going to come out of this. Man, when you bring everybody to the table, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of culture, that's when the ideas flow. If you can just hang in there. I mean, because, I mean, the creator didn't create boundaries. We created the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And then once you let go of the boundaries, oh, my God, exponential growth. And what is exponential? Okay, uh, here here we are, sequential. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Exponential, one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. Double. That's, yeah, that's the growth, man. And we got to be prepared for that. That's right. So that is a powerful metaphor. That is a powerful anecdote.
I was with Andy Young, and he told me before uh, Martin was assassinated, he said that one time they were in a hotel, and they were in Martin's room, and they were sitting around the table, and Martin was in a real good mood. And around the table was Hosea Williams, uh, Jesse Jackson, Andy Young, um, you know, uh, all, all of his lieutenants. And he said, fellas, got to be crazy to think that we can change this country. And they said, Martin, what are you talking about? He said, man, we, we got to be out of our mind. But I will tell you one thing. He says, if we are fortunate enough to change this country, no one sitting around this table right now will live to see age 40. Mm. He says, that's the bad news. But then he smiled and he says, the good news is just think of the untold opportunities that generations to come will be given just because of the work that we're doing today. have been such an amazing force to the community, to the students in Clark Atlanta, and I just want to thank you for being a part of my podcast and encouraging entrepreneurs to continue to mind their business and how to navigate, you know, through uncertain times. And not only did you give inspiration, but it's wisdom. And that is so important. So thank you, Dr. K, for your time. I so appreciate your, your Thank you very much. Oh, God bless. A huge thank you to Dr. Dennis Kimbrough for his time, inspiration, and more importantly, his wisdom and being a guest on the Mind Your Business podcast. If you want to learn more about his work, a list of his books are included in the podcast description. Thank you so much for your time. I really hope you took something away from today's episode. If you have questions about anything we've talked about today, feel free to reach out to me on my socials, which are linked in the episode description. And again, if you like what you've heard, subscribe, leave the podcast a rating, and share it with your network. I put out new episodes on the 7th of every month. This podcast is sponsored by the VDART Digital Talent Management product and solutions firm and wouldn't have been possible without their support. A huge shout out to the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship here in Atlanta for providing us an amazing location to record this episode. Production of the podcast is done by the audiographies team, Denor Sapolia as the producer and Connor Lacey as the editor. The music is by Keenan Willis and Yolanda Withers. Stay tuned, and I'll see you in the next episode. And until then, mind your business. Mind your business.